You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to week eight. We are humming along. Week eight of our Water from a Deep Well, and uh, we just have a few more after this. Um, We're going to explore. Actually, next week will be quite fun. Uh, we'll be looking at uh, conversion, and we'll be looking at the, um, the spirituality of the early evangelicals, and I think that'll be lots of fun. And um, one thing I wanted to lay out to you, I wanted to lay out to you some, uh, a, a cool opportunity. I think it's a cool opportunity. So next semester, starting January, um, I had an idea for a class, Okay. You ready? Okay, and I expect lots of enthusiasm, okay? No rolling your eyes, okay? okay. <laughs> That's like, do what Mike just did, okay? Here we go. So what I thought we could do next semester is a class, and I, I was going to call it Reframing Your World, How Jesus Shapes Everything. Because there's a famous line by Abraham Kuyper where he says, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not exclaim mine. And so I thought we could look at how how the gospel reframes everything in life. Everything. So how does the gospel reframe how we look at politics and the government? How does the gospel shape how we look at the economy? How does the gospel shape how we look at identity, sexuality, How does the gospel shape how we look at pop culture and media? Everything. Now, how much fun will that be? And so what we'll be doing is we'll be looking at how, at the lens through which we can see all of reality and how Jesus transforms everything. Be a lot of fun, right? Let me see if I, any enthusiasm? Oh, I get a thumb up. Oh, come on, people. No. (laughs) Okay. Now, now. There's more. There's more. Uh, The other thought I had is, some of you know, I'm an adjunct professor at Pacific Life Bible College. And so I teach there regularly. And one of the classes that I teach is a class on worldviews. And so this class would actually fulfill the requirements for that course. So some of you who are maybe wanting to dip your toe into college work, and I'd like to actually take a course, but I don't know how to do it, I don't really have time. Well, you could take this class and you could take it for credit. Yeah. Some of you are PLBC students or are working away at a degree. So this might be an opportunity to say, I can't make the class, but I can make it out on Tuesday night and I can take this class for credit. And so it would be a partnership that we have with Pacific Life Bible College. Now, we've done this once before, but I'd like to see more and more of a partnership. So anyhow, I'm putting that out there because some of you um, I've talked to you over the years are interested in college. And you'd like to try now. I will be marking your papers. Um, But I think it would be a good uh, experience. So that's what we're hoping to do next semester. Exciting? (laughs) I think it'll be kind of exciting. Sounds good. So good. Oh, there. Oh, I should be reading all these great comments. Yeah. Sign me up. Yay. <laughs> all right. So 
Okay, I'll leave that. That's the advertisement aside. <laughs> Someone's got bells going. Okay, let me begin our time tonight with um, Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 4, we read in verse 12, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from, from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Jesus, this is your word, and this is what you teach us about your word, that it cuts to the heart, that it is alive, it runs through us, and so we do pray that your word would speak to us and draw us into this, what it means to be people of the book. So we commit our lives to you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, as we carry on, I just want to just very quickly to say happy birthday, Natalia. So I know it's your birthday today. Happy birthday. Thank you, David. You're welcome. Okay, so let's talk about preaching. <laughs> no. Let's talk about sermons. Uh, how many sermons do you think you've listened to in your lifetime? Ray? <laughs> hundreds, yes, hundreds. Thousands. <laughs> What's that? Listen to, yes. <laughs> okay, thousands probably, right? Uh, what else you guys? Yeah, thousands for some of you there. Okay, how many of them do you remember? Uh, I know you remember all mine, but I'm talking about other people. So. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I didn't grow up in the church, so I didn't listen to the sermons growing up, but I made up for lost time. Um, but here's the thing. There's a lot of sermons that I hear that honestly I don't remember. In fact, sometimes I can't even remember what I preached, what I preached the week before when somebody says, David, what were you preaching on? I'd be like, I want to say New Testament. Um, <laughs> but here's the thing, and you've probably heard this before. I don't remember everything I've eaten over the, over the weeks, over the months, over the years. If you ask me, what did you have for supper on a Tuesday you know, November 8th, 2018, I couldn't tell you. But I do know this, that if I had not eaten over those days, I would have been hungry and my health would have been affected. And so the reality is that our lives are shaped by teaching that we don't always remember. And that's why preaching, I think, is important. We know that the preached word, God's word, goes out and it does not return empty or void. Especially if our hearts are open to receive. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to talk about the spirituality of people who recaptured the importance of the Bible. And the biggest change, now there's some preachers in the Middle Ages, uh, some really good preachers. I think of Savonarola, I think of Jan Hus, I think of John Wycliffe, um, John Christostom of the 4th century, 
There's some very well-known preachers throughout the ages, but the biggest change takes place um, in a time called the, Pro the Protestant Reformation. And there's a shift that takes place, and the Protestant Reformation basically kicks off in the year 1517. And what happens after the Protestant Reformation, there's a shift that takes place. And the shift that takes place is a shift from, if you went to a church, what would be at the center used to be the altar. So the center would be the sacraments, the Eucharist. But the shift that takes place after the Protestant Reformation is you go from the altar to the pulpit. Because the priest were, and so if you go to Reformational churches, what's right at the middle is the pulpit and the pulpit is often elevated too and um, so the sacraments remain important it's not like the sacraments disappeared they still have deep significance and meaning and we talked about that a few weeks ago but the preaching of god's word became central what caused the change well what caused the change is it's a handful of people that we're going to look at one guy is Martin Luther, lived from 1483 to 1546. He's a pioneer of the Protestant Reformation, and if you've taken my classes over the years, you'll know I've touched on Luther a few times. Uh, how many of you would say that you're fairly familiar with Luther's story? Yes, I see a couple of hands, yeah? All right. Now, Luther... Luther, uh, and we'll talk about him a little bit, he was a theologian for sure, but he was also known as a very powerful preacher. Uh, he was a prolific preacher. In fact, we know during a five-month stretch, five months, in 1528, he preached 195 sermons over five months. Wow. Wow. We know that Luther's church in Wittenberg, that there were services on Sunday. And do you know what, you want to know the service times? I might have them in your notes, or I may not. Okay, so the morning service was at what time? That would seem reasonable. Five o'clock. Yeah, the first service was at five o'clock, second service at 10 o'clock, and then one in the afternoon which I think we should not complain how early the 9.30 service is, right? So what happens in each service? Well, there's a liturgy that was followed, hymns that were sung, prayers that were prayed, Eucharist that was celebrated, but there were sermons, and these sermons tended to be a bit on the long side, at least an hour long. Um, Sunday was the day that you would go and hear sermons, but not just Sunday. Throughout the week, there are lots of opportunities to hear more preaching. For example, on Monday and Tuesday, Luther would preach on the catechism, the basics of the faith. On Wednesdays, he would preach on the Gospel of Matthew. Thursdays and Fridays, on the Apostolic Letters. Saturday, the Gospel of John. Now, I can't complain if I'm on two weeks in a row. Um, we still have copies of... 2,300 of the 4,000 sermons that he preached. So we have lots of copies of his preaching. So he's quite the preacher. Now, the other guy who's quite a preacher is John Calvin. 
1564 of Geneva, and we'll look at him in a moment. But John Calvin preached twice on Sunday, and then every other day of the week, and he uh, and you do that every on alternate weeks. But it is said that John Calvin preached an average of 290 sermons in a year. That's a lot of sermons. That's a lot of prep work. Um, his sermons between just 15 years, 1549 and 1564, take up 44 volumes. And it turns out that he preached, I don't know how he did this, but he preached 200 messages on the book of Deuteronomy. 200, that's a long series, right? 200. So this preaching is, is pretty stark. It's pretty, it's, it's, it's pretty significant. And it's one of the markers of the Reformation. Now, fast forward to today. And uh, things have changed. In a lot of Protestant churches, what you'll find is the role of the sermon has steadily become less and less. It's been, it has eroded. Um, in fact, what people will say, for right or for wrong, and they could be right, I'm going to ask you in a second. They say, you know what? The world has changed, David. People's attention span is getting shorter and shorter. And in fact, um, <laughs> a lot of people who, you know, whose, whose main meat and potatoes are online articles or TikTok videos would find a sermon too long. And I've actually been recommended by someone to tailor my messages so that they're more akin to the length of an average YouTube video, which is about 15 to 17 minutes. Um, now, now part of this, part of this, is there's a changing understanding of the role of the pastor. It used to be a pastor is more of a shepherd. Pastor is preaching and pastoral care. But it has shifted to being more the pastor's CEO, uh, in charge of a lot of things, the running of a church. And so that takes a lot of work. And so job descriptions begin to change, expectations begin to change, and what gets sacrificed typically is the length and the quality of the sermon. And so also say we're in a world where the place and quality of the sermon are being challenged. So here's the awkward question. What do you think about the importance of the sermon? And before you answer, you need to know, I won't be offended. <laughs> I really won't be offended because I've had lots of good conversations with people on this. And, and, and there may, you know, as it is, Luther will probably be offended by me. You know, just a 30-minute sermon. Huh, that's so short. Let me hear from you. What do you think? How, how important is this sermon and how long should a sermon be? Yeah, Theo.
right? Okay. So Theo, Theo talks about is coming from an Eastern Orthodox background. Um, and in an Eastern Orthodox church, if there is a homily, it's what, maybe 10 minutes long? Yeah, it's about 10 minutes long. And, um, and that, um, but even in, in, in days of yore, uh, it's not like people who are, who are illiterate would necessarily be able to follow a one-hour sermon as it is. So it's not really a question about a t attention span. But in your estimation, the, the, the role of the sermon is quite important. Okay, good. Um, let's see what you guys are saying. 35, 30 to 45 minutes. Is that how long you preached last week, Mike? <laughs> Roughly, okay. Uh, it's important to, as it reveals God's love, his character, and his living to convict us in our lives. 40 minutes. Up to an hour is good. Oh, it warms my heart. Yeah. <laughs> Two hours. All right. Can we do three? Can we do three? <laughs> okay, let me hear you. Al, what do you think? That's right. So it's not, it's the quality of the message because you could have a, a short, redundant, boring sermon or you could have a longer, but if it moves along and it's, the quality is good, yeah. Yes, yeah. So same with prayer, yeah. It, it doesn't have to be really, really long. Very good. Yeah, Phoebe. Yeah, that is true. So Phoebe's making the point. It, the, the cards are stacked in our favor because you guys are doing extracurricular. You're coming out on a Tuesday night to learn more. So yeah, it, it is kind of a loaded question. Yeah, if I asked it to the youth group on Thursday, you should ask to the, to the middle school kids and see what they say. Yeah, yeah, you should. I'm, I'm, I'm serious, yeah. Well, yeah. Right, if you want to go deeper in your faith, and one of the main ways we go deeper in our faith is through knowing God's word, then you would think that more time would be better than shorter. Yeah, good. That's true, because in, in the past, because of the higher illiteracy, um, you might need a longer sermon because people didn't have access to God's word and God's truth any other way. That's true. That's good. And it's interesting, one of the things we'll find out is one of the biggest contributions that the reformers had was the growth of literacy in Europe. Wherever, now it's interesting, wherever you find Protestant churches, you find literacy. Um, there's, it's literacy and the Protestant movement, and in particular evangelical movement, went together big time. So, for the reformers, for these people, oh, I want to see Pastor, Pastor Mark often says the most important words you're going to hear today. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, yeah. 
Good. Um, for the reformers in the 15th and 16th century, preaching was really mattered. Preaching was, God, was a primary vehicle um, to speak God's truth to his people. So if I wanted to learn the story of salvation, the means through which I do that would be through preaching and the sacraments, but preaching was very important. And so it was important for the reformers not only to preach, but also to have the Bible available in a language that people could understand. And so there's a move away from Latin. Even the, even the Latin, if you think about the, the, um, the uh, Latin translations, the Latin, does it, what's it called? The Latin Vulgate, yeah. You think about Vulgate, Vulgate, Vulgar. It's the language of the people. So originally the Latin was a translation in the vernacular for the people who spoke Latin. But then it became this elevated language that nobody understood or very few people understood. And so the reformers saw it really important to be able to preach the word in the vernacular, in a, in a language that people could understand. And they would preach in a way that people could understand. And whenever I hear that, I always think of the story, there's a guy named Alistair McGrath, and he's a theologian, and he talks about this preacher who's preaching in Northern England to a mining town. And he's preaching about this different, this particular theological position. And he's preaching it to a bunch of, you know, hard, tough miners, right? And so he finishes preaching this theological position. He goes, I know what you're thinking. You're all thinking that sounds like Sibelianism. And McGrath goes, I guarantee you nobody was thinking of that word. Nobody understood what he was even saying. So you had to speak, preach in a way that people understood. And the word of God was so important um, it was the, the reformers made it their mission to let the word be translated into the vernacular. That's the first thing that Martin Luther did, translate the Bible into German, and his translation kind of held sway right until the 20th century. It's a very good translation. It's crazy how quickly he wrote it, too. Um, but the idea was is that everybody needed to know the Bible. In fact, you could read the Bible in the vernacular, but the reformers hoped was that at some point you would love the Bible so much you'd be like, huh, I wonder what it says in the original language. And so some, there's a guy named Martin Butzer, he says he hoped that in Europe there would come a day where most people in Europe would be literate in biblical Hebrew. I don't think it happened. Uh, but that was his hope, right? And so these reformers said so one of the best callings for a preacher is to preach the Bible. God is a God who reveals himself through his word. And so what I want to do is I want to spend a few minutes. Some of you know the story of Martin Luther, but it's, 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 it's an interesting story because as we look at his story, we get a spirituality of what it means to love God's word. And so I want to look at Martin Luther uh, for a moment. How many of you have not heard, ever heard the story of Martin Luther? Okay, well, okay. So how many of you would say you're really familiar, you could tell it to me from where you're sitting? <laughs> I feel you're probably good, yeah, okay. I want to begin at the end, or around the middle. Begin the story at the middle. And uh, we're going to go through these stories quickly, but I, I think they're going to help us. Um, 
I want to begin at an event that takes place in 1521, in April 1521. And it's this, this, this meeting, and it's called the Diet of Worms. Diet of Worms. Doesn't sound very appetizing, but it was. A diet was a meeting, not a, not, not a meal. And so there's a key moment in the history of the church that takes place on this day, April 1521, April 18th to be specific. There's a fellow named Martin Luther, an Augustinian monk, stood in a hall, and he's, who's standing before him? But the emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, Charles V. And Luther's been dragged up on charges of preaching heresy, on preaching heresy, on false teachings about the gospel, the authority of scripture, the authority of the pope, yeah. And so this, in, this formal assembly is called, and Luther's standing there, and on a table in front of him are all of his books, all of his writings. And the person who is putting him under the pressure, they said, all right, Luther, what we want you to do. He said, are these your books? Luther says, yes, they're my books. And they said, answer the question, will you recant, take back everything you wrote? Luther said, well, it's kind of hard for me to do that because some of the writings are okay. Some of the writings may not be okay. I don't know which ones you're referring to. <laughs> like, enough! Will you recant? And Luther's like, that's a really big question. Can you give me another day to think about it? He's <laughs> like, Luther's dragging his feet a little bit. Comes back the next day, and, uh, and, and, and then he says, he says to him, he says, I ask by the mercy of God, may your most serene majesty and most illustrious lordships or anyone else who is able, either high or low, bear witness, expose my errors, overthrowing them by the writings of the prophets and the evangelists. Get that. And he says, look at where I made a mistake, but the standard you use has to be the Bible. Once I've been taught, I shall be ready to renounce every error, and I'll be the first to throw my books into the fire. He says, if you can convince me by scripture that these are all, I'll throw them into the fire. They didn't buy it. He said, ha, nice try, Luther. Maybe they, something like that, they said. Will you recant or not? And then Luther's famous line. Now listen to this carefully. Since then your serene majesty and your lordship seek a simple answer, I'll give it in this manner, neither horn nor tooth, unless I'm convinced by the testimonies of the scriptures, or by clear reason, for I do not trust in either Pope or in the councils alone, since it's well known that they've often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it's neither safe nor right to go against my conscience. And then the most famous words that he never said, here I stand, I can do no other. Apparently he never said that. Um, so this is Luther. This is a key moment in his life. Now, if you know the story, how did Luther get to this point? Well, he's a young guy, he's studying to be a lawyer, his dad wanted him to be a lawyer, and then Luther is planning to be a lawyer. He's a really good student, he got a nickname, the philosopher, I'd like to have that kind of nickname. Hey, hey David the philosopher. Um, maybe it wouldn't be a cool nickname, but um, 
He's, he's doing well, but one night he's walking home. And there's a storm. And there's a flash of lightning, thunderclap, and lightning almost hits him. And the, the story goes is that Luther falls to the ground. And he falls to the ground and he cries out these words. He says, Help me, Saint Anne, and I will become a monk. Now, here's a geeky question. It's kind of a fun question. He says, help me, St. Anne, and I'll become a monk. That statement pretty much summarizes everything about the medieval way of thinking about God. What are some things about that sentence that, should, that reveal medieval thinking? Just throw some ideas. Why St. Anne? Well, exactly. Why? So he calls upon God? No. He calls upon a saint. So this idea that this saint could somehow help him out. Now, St. Anne was the, um, was the saint that was associated with coal miners, and his dad was a coal miner, so it's kind of the patron saint of coal miners, so his family. So he calls on St. He doesn't call on God. He's scared of God. So he calls upon a saint to help him out. So this idea that somehow saints can stand between us and God and help us out. Good. What else? God is unapproachable. Yeah, he, doesn't, he does not call out to God. He calls out to a saint. Uh, crying out to a dead person rather than God. Bargaining with God. Very good, Laurie. Yeah. If you, then I will. Right? That's the understanding. It's not grace. It's like, hey, if you don't kill me, then I will do this. Right? So it's this bargaining understanding of God. That this quid pro quo. Right? Good. Bargaining with God. What else? You think of anything else? What's he going to become? A monk, which means he's going to be the most Christian person possible in medieval thinking, is to be a monk, is to dedicate. And so that's much to his father's chagrin. That's what Luther does. He leaves law, goes off, and becomes a monk. And as a monk, he is a very, very intense monk. A very intense monk. In fact, he tries to out-monk every other monk because, actually, he says something along those lines. He says, I was a good monk, and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if a monk ever got to heaven by his monkishness, it was I. <laughs> this is what Luther says. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me would hear me out. If I kept on it any longer, I would have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other works. So he's working so hard. Why? He's out-monking the other monks because... He wants to know God. And so he's like, I'll do whatever I can to please God. I have to do more to please God. And when I mess up, I need to confess. Because if I die and I got some sins hanging over me, I am toast. And so his, his abbot gets mad. It's like, Luther, you don't have to confess every stupid thing that you do because he's just like i think i confess. I, I should I, I did this wrong and the, and the abbot's like enough enough and the abbot's actually quite smart he says luther why don't you go for a trip to rome experience the glory of rome and luther goes there and it's just as corrupt as can be luther comes back and says like, oh, this is terrible i hate this i can't stand it any he, and he's afraid of god he's afraid of god he reads the words, the righteousness of God in Romans 1.17, and he thinks, God is righteous, I'm not. How could I possibly lead communion? 
This is the body of Christ. This is the blood of Jesus. I am toast. I am toast. Now, all this changes when Luther goes off to Wittenberg to teach. And while he's there, he actually starts reading the Bible. And he starts reading the Bible in the original because there's some, some early translations that are starting to happen. And what happens? It's dangerous. Because when you start to read the Bible, something happens. Luther discovered that Jesus is not aloof, far off, and judgmental. And he discovers this idea that, that one is justified not by how hard they work and not by what they do, but they're justified by faith. Yeah, you're justified by faith through grace. And that salvation is a free gift from God. And this is possible. He learns this by reading the Bible, and especially reading the Bible in the original language. And he says, I felt born again. I felt like I had entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. And so everything, everything begins to change. And, and then Luther starts looking around, and one guy just drives him crazy because this guy doesn't come to his town, but just outside of his town, what's his name? doesn't like him. This guy's named John Tetzel. And John Tetzel is a snake oil salesman. And he's trying to raise money for this archbishop to pay back money that he owes. It's, it's very, very corrupt. And so Tetzel is this slimy salesman who's been given the job to raise money, <laughs> one, to pay back a debt uh, that uh, the archbishop owed, and also money to go towards the building of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. So Tetzel goes around and he starts saying, hey, have I got a deal for you? You know, Al, because of your sin, I hate to tell you, when you die, I'm not sure where you're going to go. You've got a lot of sin. But here's the thing. Today, and today only, for $49.99 donation to the church, it's not a payment, it's a donation. Your sins are forgiven, all forgiven, for good. You get to go to heaven. What do you say? What a deal. What a deal. What a deal. <laughs> well, that's the thing. No, that's the thing. Because, hey, hey, not just you, not you. And, and today, because I like you. For two, 70 bucks. 70 bucks. One for your relative who passed away. Might be stuck in purgatory for a long time. Hey, hey, 70 bucks, they're in. I got another jingle. <laughs> and so he actually has a jingle. I'm not, and I'm not making this up. And the jingle went like this. It says, When the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. I don't know if he was from New York or whatever accent that was. But, I mean, Luther sees this and he's like, No, that's not in the Bible. And he gets so mad. And he actually, he, he actually confronts him, right? And so Luther, he ends up standing up against the church. He writes his famous 95 Theses, um, where he writes 95 reasons why he's a little ticked off at the church. <laughs> Somebody takes it down, translates it, and that's after the advent of the, the printing press, makes lots of copies. And Luther's just wanting to have a, a debate, a university debate, but he begins what is we call now the Reformation. And he gets in all sorts of trouble, uh, because he makes a stunning statement. He says, you know what he says? He says, a simple layman, a simple person, 
armed with the scriptures is superior than the Pope and all of its councils. You see why he got into trouble. He's threatened with excommunication. Uh, they, they issue a bull of condemnation and they say, Luther, we want to talk to you. <laughs> Come to Rome. And Luther's like, I was born on a Tuesday, but not last Tuesday. I know what happens when you go to Rome. I'm going to stay here. Thank you. Um, and Luther's like, you know, so the, the Pope excommunicates him. He says, I excommunicate you. He's like, Al Pacino, you're all out of order. Whatever. Anyhow. So, and that brings us to the Diet of Worms. But the three big things that Luther emphasized are the three solas. Sola means alone, right? You think, I'm, I'm solo, right? Sola fide, by faith alone. Sola gratia, by grace alone. Sola scriptura, by scripture alone. And he rejects works of righteousness. Um, we cannot earn or buy our way into heaven. What is required from us is faith. And Jesus is not far, far away, but Jesus is so close. And it is through him that we have forgiveness and we have eternal life. And so Luther, one of his strongest emphases in his theology, is the theology of the cross, says you want to understand the character of God, look at Jesus on the cross. Powerful stuff. Very powerful. Now, Luther was not a perfect person. Don't, I mean, he had some, he wrote some horrible things towards the end of his life. He was quite sick. He was quite sick and in a lot of pain and, and, and quite a bitter person towards the end of his life. It's, it's, it's kind of sad. But his, his, his legacy is huge. Any questions about Luther? Uh, they're not big fans of Luther. So, um, 1517, so in 2017, was the uh, quincentennial, uh, the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. And lots of books came out talking about Luther, but a lot of books were also written by Catholics saying, hey, this guy isn't all that he's proud to be. And there's pretty harsh books criticizing Luther as well. And I, I was, I was, I read a lot of them. For some reason, 1517, I read a lot of stuff about Luther. Um, and it was interesting to read a Catholic writer and a Protestant writer, the same guy, but you know, one's not too happy about Luther at all. And, uh, and some of the Catholic uh, pushback, I mean, there, there's one pushback that I, I'm sympathetic to, but overall, I think uh, what Luther did was, was quite powerful, because he says, you know what, the Bible matters. We need to read, everybody needs to read the Bible. The Bible will change your life. And, and, and rediscovering the gospel. That is not through saints, or it's not through building up a treasury of merit, or accessing this treasury of merit that only the Pope can dispense, that sort of stuff. That's not how we get into the presence of God. We get it through grace. Grace alone, scripture alone, faith alone. And I think we, that's, that's the genius of that. And what Luther's teaching, he's not, this isn't novel. This is, this is in, it, it had been lost in scripture. It had been lost in the church. It, had been, it stayed in scripture, but it had been lost in the church. Yeah. And a part of it is the Latin translation of the word metanoia. They translate it as penance rather than repentance. 
And so within the Catholic Church, the idea of penance is what do I need to do in order to compensate for my sins, rather than repentance, which is a changing of the mind, instead of going this way, turning to God, right? Big difference. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's great. Yeah, we have a lot of people with Orthodox background. So yeah. What is in the middle of all of this? How does it feel about an Orthodox perspective? Because our church hasn't changed much at all since the Catholic Church was Yeah. 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 Very good. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. That's a great question. So the question is. Uh, for our folks online is um, uh, my sister here is from uh, uh, Eastern Orthodox background and she wants to know so what is the Eastern Orthodox view of Luther and all that's going on during this time and how does maybe the Eastern Orthodox theology differ from what Luther was saying um, historically there's a big gap between the West and the East at this time. So you think about the time, 1517, 1453 is when Constantinople fell. And so um, the Eastern church has kind of fallen into darkness. It's kind of transferred a little bit up more towards Russia as being the center of Eastern Orthodox at this time, at the early 1500s. And so there is this, this difference. Now the Eastern Orthodox church doesn't really have much to do with the Western church after um, was it 1054 because there's a schism there's a there's a separation between the west and the east and so they kind of do their own thing in the west they kind of do their own thing there are lots of similarities between the roman catholic church and the eastern orthodox church in terms of the recognition of the councils and the authority of the councils the eastern orthodox church recognizes a few more councils that the western church do, does not recognize or the catholic church does not recognize in the western church they say the pope is equal with all the patriarchates of in the east but there he is a greater of, among all equals and the eastern church says uh, uh um and so there's a bit of that theologically there's some differences what luther does is primarily influencing against the catholic church now it's interesting to note that in the last i think 20 or 30 years there has been a note of agreement between the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Lutheran Church on the nature of the gospel as being by grace through faith, which is interesting. Um, so that's historically, there are different, you know, the Eastern Church is in trouble in, in, in 1517 um, because of uh, it being overrun by Muslims in 1453. So it's in disarray, but in terms of theology, you know, what Luther argues and what the Eastern Church would have argued at that time would have still been as miles apart as Luther and the Catholic Church. Does that kind of answer your question? Yeah, that's great. 
It did, but they, they overran Constantinople in 1453. Yeah, that, that's, that's, yeah, it had been around and had been banging on, on Constantinople's door for quite a while and finally broke through the walls in 1453. And then the light in the Hagia Sophia, the story goes, just was there and just poof, disappeared and they said the Holy Spirit left. That's the story, anyhow. Uh, what was your question? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question. So why was, Luther was quite, um, quite uh, bitter at the end of his life, and the reason for that is that he had hoped. Well, I mean, there's a number of reasons. He gets grumpy about everyone. One of the issues for Luther, just physically, is he is chronically constipated. He's chronically constipated, and we kind of chuckle, but it's, he's in a lot of pain. And the treatment for constipation was um, dried dog feces mixed into water, which I'm, I'm a doctor, but not that kind of doctor, I'm a doctor of history. I'm pretty sure that that would not work. Um, and so that did a number on him. And so he was in a lot of pain. So. Uh, the other thing is that he had hoped early on in his life that this revelation of sola scriptura, sola fide, you know, sola gratia, was so winsome that you were going to see such a conversion of the Jews. And he wrote some articles to the, about the Jews early on that actually within German society was quite sympathetic towards Jews, unusually sympathetic for the time period. There's a lot of anti, anti-Jewishness at the time. When Luther saw that the Jews had not come to faith, he got mad and he wrote some letters or he wrote some treatises against the Jews and it's those treatises that are quite harsh and they were dug up by the Third Reich, by the Nazis, and were used as a, as a, as a way to support the, uh, the Holocaust. And so that's, that's a really dark legacy of Luther, for sure. Yeah. Good. Hey, well, good questions. Um, we'll talk just briefly about... Um, uh, yeah, I would say, Laurie, he's not... I, Luther's not anti-Semitic, he's anti-Jewish religion, and there is, there is, there's a difference there. Um, he wasn't, because he was actually quite, quite pro-Jewish early on, but he's, he's disappointed with the Jewish religion at the end. And I think, I think there's, there's, a, there's a difference between that and, and anti-Semitic, but anyhow, that's another conversation. Calvin, Calvin, we don't know much about Calvin. We love Calvin. I mean, some of us love Calvin. Um, I like Calvin. Um, Calvin's a lot younger than Luther. Um, but Calvin is brilliant. He is probably the greatest, one of the greatest, the- he is the greatest Protestant theologian and one of the greatest theologians of all time. Uh, <laughs> like, uh, like Luther, I think he was going to become a lawyer. Um, and then he was going to become a priest and decided not to. And then he, um, the Reformation starts to take root, and Calvin, and he's influenced by some of these ideas in the, in, in the Reformation. 
And he starts, he's, a, he's an expert on the classics. He, he studies the classics quite well. We're not sure when he was converted, when his life changed. And part of the reason is that he kept the diary, but the diary was destroyed. And like, no, oh, man, that would have been so interesting because we, we don't know much about him. Uh, we do know he has this one kind of strange thing 25 years later when he's a well-known pastor. He says this, you see it in your notes. He says, God drew me from obscure and lowly beginnings and conferred on me that most honorable office of herald and minister of the gospel. What happened first was that by an unexpected conversion, he tamed to teachableness a mind too stubborn for its years. Okay, well, Calvin, throw us a bone. What, what do you mean by this? Um, so he doesn't really, he says, for I, was, I used to be devoted to the superstitions of the papacy, but everything changed. But we don't know when this happened, how it happened, and what I wish we did. But his life has changed. And one of the things that's going on for Calvin is um, around the time of Calvin, there's this movement. Anybody, any Mennonites in our midst? I see that hand. Just one Mennonite. Wow, okay, I can say what I want. It's only one. Um, <laughs> well, there's this movement around the same time. It's called the Anabaptist movement. And it's Anabaptist, and there's a lot of Protestants, and they're like, you know what? In the Bible, only adults are baptized. Why are we baptizing these infants? We should baptize each other. And so these, these guys, these Swiss, and they, they baptize each other as adults. And, and, and they're not just priests, there's lay people baptizing. And they're like, adults should baptize adults. And for the Lutherans and for, the, for Calvin and for the Catholics, they're like, okay, you guys are crazy. This is really strange. You don't be doing this. And then at that time, there were these cult-like Anabaptist people who are just cuckoo bananas. They look, they're like David Koresh, like kind of cult people doing some really weird things. And the Catholics are like, see, we told you, you leave Mother Church and you go cuckoo banana. That's what's going to happen. I told you, you didn't listen to us. And so Calvin's like, no, no, what Luther said is still so important. In fact, I'll, I'll show you. And he writes this really important book. What's the book? Does anybody know? It's one of the most famous books in church history. The Institutes of, the, of Christian Religion. And he writes them at the age of 26. And I feel like such a loser. Because he writes the Institutes at 26. Crazy. But he writes it saying, look, what we believe about the Bible makes sense. And so the whole Institutes lays out why the Bible makes sense. Now the story of Luther, he ends up in a place called Geneva. Ends up... Um, doing a lot of work there, gets married, leaves Geneva, comes back to Geneva. And for him, he is the author. He was a very careful preacher, and he is the author of so many commentaries on the Bible because he preaches through the Bible. He doesn't actually write it, but there's people sitting there, like you or Susan, with your pen, and you're writing everything that Calvin's saying, and then these become uh, the transcripts for his uh, commentaries, right? So he's quite well known. He, he dies young because he did not sleep very much, which is kind of scary for me. Um, yeah, he dies quite young. Promotes singing in the church, but it has to be from the Bible. This is where he differs from Luther. Luther says, hey, 
You can write any song so long as it's biblical, sing it away. What's Luther's famous hymn? A mighty fortress is our God, right? Calvin said, da, 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 da. don't be doing that. It has to be right from the Bible. So it's got to be a song. And so in the tradition of Calvin, you have uh, Chris Tomlin and, no, just uh, different people, <laughs> different singers. Okay, so what do we learn? What I want to do is end, end our time. Is what do we learn from these guys, from Luther and Calvin? Well, a few things. Um, the role of the preacher is absolutely serious. When you preach, you're proclaiming God's revelation of himself. So you better get it right, and you need to be careful. Don't play fast and loose with God's word, because life is at stake. You, must, you need to take preparation seriously. Uh, you need to cultivate disciplines in your life. You need to know scripture, understand doctrine, and to realize that not only do you preach the word, but you need to live the word. All right? But preaching doesn't mean what you say is, is wooden or dry. You can be creative. And, and, and apparently Luther was very creative. He would often use, you know, just very uh, homey anecdotes and, 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 and some humor in, in his sermons. Um, they used a lot of creativity. And so that's okay. But they took it seriously. Secondly, the preparation of the preacher, you had to be good stewards. Um, you needed to... You needed to preach the whole counsel of God. That means you need to be familiar with the whole Bible. You don't just preach the books that you're interested in. I knew a preacher once. He was a good, very dear friend of mine. And he would preach. He would. He, his philosophy of ministry. Brent, you know who he is. Probably once I describe. Um, his philosophy of ministry was to pastor at a place for five years and then go to another place. And I said, why? He goes, ah, it keeps things fresh. And I said, why else? He goes, well, this way you can take your sermons that you just did and re-preach them for another five years. Go to another place, re-preach them for another five years. And so you could have your set number of sermons and you don't need to go beyond that. I always, I, I love the man, but I, I didn't agree with that. Um, you needed to be very careful when you went up into the pulpit um, in terms of what you're about to say. <laughs> John Newton, he's kind of funny. He's later, he's 18th century. I mean, it's nothing I'm sure he's proud of, and he's probably not happy that I'm sharing this, but I read his journal once. <laughs> I, well, I've read his journal many times. And in Newton writes, as, for his, the Sunday sermon, he writes these words. He says, catched at a text on the pulpit steps. And what he, what he means by that is he thought of a passage to preach on as he's walking up to the pulpit. Like, that's cutting it close, right? <laughs> that's cutting it close. Um, for Calvin, you just need to read the Bible well, and you need to read all the Bible, and you need to read it carefully. Now, just as an aside, this is kind of interesting. I find it very interesting. Any scientists out here? Any scientists with us? Okay. Now, when we look at science, 
and you look at Western science as looking very carefully at God's creation, studying God's creation, and understanding God's creation, that idea of looking carefully, it's interesting that most of the fathers of modern science, sorry, there's no mothers, they're fathers, were Calvinists. If you go through, there's, there are some Catholics, I'm not saying, but most of them are Calvinists. Not just Protestants, but Calvinists. Why? Well, Calvin's approach to reading God's word was such that you read the words. So you read a sentence, recognize the sentence is within a paragraph, this paragraph is within a chapter, this chapter is within a book. Read it carefully, read it carefully, read it carefully, read it carefully, you can understand it. Just be very careful reader of God's word. And that careful reading of God's word translated to a careful reading of God's creation. And so a lot of the early scientists of the six, and you look at you know, the, the, the scientific revolution when that takes place, it takes place on the heels of the Reformation. And, and you have a lot of people saying, okay, I'm going to look at creation, I'm going to look at it carefully, recognizing that God's not a God who plays hide and seek, but if I look at it carefully, I can understand the nature of things. It's really interesting. That's just an aside, but I always find that, that quite interesting. The character of the preacher. Character of the preacher mattered greatly. Calvin writes, it would be better for him to break his neck going up into the pulpit if he does not take pains to be first to follow God. John Barrage, my man, uh, 18th century guy, he says, I hope you'll like this expedition. He's talking about a guy who's preaching. The people are simple-hearted. They want bread, not venison, and can eat their meat without sauce or a French cook saying, just give them the straight goods, right? Wayne Cadero, who's a pastor in Hawaii, talked about the time where he was on the verge of burnout. Do you remember that, Sharon? That dead leader running, dead leader walking, I think that was the talk. And he talks about almost on, almost burning out as a pastor. He says what happened in his pastoral life is that early on it was like, oh, this is good. And then sharing it with everybody. He says later on, he just started going like this. He was preaching God's word, but none of it was hitting here. And it just about killed him. Just, he says, when you preach, you have to, it has to hit your, your heart first before you go around telling people. Otherwise, you just say, take my advice, I'll never use it. Or take this advice, I'll never use it. It has to hit your heart first. The other thing about these reformers is that they're pastors. They cared about the people under their charge. And they understood their life and their background and their challenges. And when they counseled someone, they counseled them by turning them towards God and his word. And one of the challenges, I'll just say as a pastor, is um, one of the challenges as a pastor is um, people expect you to be a counselor. And so I'll often have people come to me and they say, you know, I'm really struggling with this issue. Can you counsel me? And my response is, I'm a horrible counselor. I really am. I'm, I'm not. I, most of the advice I give is not not always that good. Um, now, what I can do is help you listen to God and read His Word and see what it says. 
But if you're wanting marital help or something, I don't know. I mean, what do I know, right? But I can point you to what God's word says. And these, these guys, um, that's what they would do. They would, if they were to counsel, they would counsel by pointing people to God's word, right? So the reformers worked diligently and faithfully. They accurately proclaimed the word of God. But the question remains is how should we read the word and how should we respond to the word? So let me ask you this. What are some ways that, see you later, thanks. What are some ways that you can wrongly read the Bible or approach the Bible? What are some, some ways that you can go wrong? Okay, treat it as a story that's not even real, that didn't really happen. Yeah, right. Yeah, so pick verses out of context that sound good and that you like. Yeah, Phoebe. Using parts of the Bible to prove what they don't actually prove, yes. What they don't actually teach, right? Yeah. What do you guys say? Verses taken out of context, a contextually spot reading, cherry picking verses. Hey, we're all on the same page, right? Um, now, the other way you can go wrong is by, I'll describe it as standing over God's word. So that is by saying, okay, I'm going to use this skill, I'm going to look at this word, and I'm going to find out what the context of the word is, and then it means this, and that. Like, I'm in charge of the meaning of the text. And I can understand using the right biblical tools what the word is saying. Now that's the dangerous part, because to use biblical tools to understand the meaning of a text is good, but there's a difference in posture when you're standing over or standing under. And when you stand over, you're in trouble. So there's a story, do you guys, there's a story by Herman Melville. I forget this is the story, I think it's Lord Jim or something like that. Is that Lord Jim, Mel, Melville? Shoot, that's recorded. I don't know who the, what the book is. Um, but in the book, it's not uh, Moby Dick, but in the book, there's a character named Dr. Cuticle. Anyhow, it takes place on a boat. And on the boat, there's all these sailors and one sailor gets badly injured, really badly injured. But on the ship, there's a surgeon who is just chomping at the bit to do surgery, because this is so interesting. And so they said to him, they approached the surgeon and say, hey, so-and-so is injured, you need to help him. He goes, I got this, I got this. Put the body on the table. All right, everybody gather around and check this out. And so he starts cutting into the body. And he says, look, here's the heart. This is this, this is this, and this is what this body does. This is this part of this part. And everybody's kind of quiet. And he's like, what? Aren't you enjoying this? This is so interesting. But nobody's saying anything, but they've all noticed what has happened. Person died. And sometimes you can do that. Well, you notice this. Cool. And the Bible says this. And this means this. And this connects to this. And this means this. And this goes back to the Masoretic text. And this goes back to the Septuagint. And you're standing over it. And before you know it, it's dead. 
You're not listening to God. You're in control of the text. So you have to be very careful. Very careful. And then, I'll tell you, that is the danger for pastors. They stand over the text and they analyze it to death. You have to be careful. There's a reason why exit Jesus sounds a lot like exit Jesus. Um, you have to be careful. So, what are some ways that we can study God's word? I said Jesus. I like that, Lori. And that's reading into the text what you want to see. Reading without the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Again, that's very good. Okay, we'll, we'll get to that because that's, that's... We need to know the story. You need to know the story of the Bible. So you need to get the overall story. That's really important. And so in order to do that, you need to read the Bible, not just your favorite verses, but read the Bible. Has anybody ever done the Bible in a year? Or the Bible in two years? Laura, you've done it? Oh, very cool. Yeah? Um, a lot of people start off in January, gung-ho, and then February, hit Leviticus, uh, and it slows down. Second, we need to realize, again, that we are part of this. I love um, um, Eugene Peterson um, tells a story when he's, he's, he's talking to his granddaughter and he's telling her a story about trolls. And he, and he tells these great stories about trolls and uh, the, the granddaughter says, that's a great story. Tell me it again. And then she says something interesting. She goes, tell me the story again but this time put me in it. And I think when we read God's word, we need to remember that we are part of this story. We are brought into this story. And we are to incarnate. God's word needs to, to, to be in us and we need to demonstrate through our lives God's word. We need to learn to listen to God's word. The art of listening. We need to allow the living, penetrating, transforming Word of God to change us into the people we are meant to be. And so we need to allow God's Word to get through us. We need to allow the Word of God to intrude in our lives, to make us uncomfortable. When's the last time God's Word has really made you uncomfortable? where it cuts to the heart. That's why it's good to actually read the Bible in different translations. Because if you're like me, you've heard the one translation so many times that you, you just kind of ignore it. You get used to it. The other thing that I don't do typically is I don't underline in my Bibles. Do you know why? Like there is something about underlining and you put the date and you remember. Okay, this. But what's the danger of underlining? Underlining. Yeah, and you ignore the other places. Yeah. And so there could be another passage where God is trying to speak to you, but your eyes are going to flit over them to the next underline. We 
We need to remember the importance between revelation, inspiration, and illumination. So I just put that on there as a theological question. Do you know, this is a question I ask people who are being ordained in the Alliance, I was on the committee. What is the difference between revelation, inspiration, and illumination? Anyone want to give it a shot? These are theological terms. Phoebe? Revelation is what? Is new? Yeah, okay, so I'll give you one out of three. Yeah, that's the last one. <laughs> the inspiration one was, yeah. Revelation is we believe that God reveals himself, that God reveals his character, that God is not a God who plays hide and seek. He's not behind a cloud of unknowing. As we were looking last week in mysticism, that was one of the criticisms. It's like, well, God actually reveals himself and his purposes. So God is a, a God who reveals what we need to know, right? Inspiration, as Phoebe pointed out, is really important, is that God doesn't, so these, these writers, like Paul, he's not like, all right, what do you say, God? Uh, okay, was that a comma? Okay, no, I mean, it's, it's not, God's not dictating through Paul. He's speaking through Paul, but he's also using Paul's personality. And so, so God inspires Paul, he inspires James, he inspires Mark to write the words that he wrote. But you also get their personality and the way they structure the letter, right? And so you get a mixture of, of man and God. It's interesting. Illumination is when we read God's word, but we read it prayerfully asking God the Holy Spirit to bring to light what he wants to say to us. And so the Holy Spirit illumines the text so it speaks into our heart. And all three things are at play when we're reading God's word. You need to remember that, right? One, that God's willing to speak to you. Two, he speaks to you through these people throughout history. And three, by the Holy Spirit, he will impress into your heart what he wants to say to you through your reading of the text, okay? Finally, we need to remember the primary value of uh, God's word is that it brings us back to Jesus. Our goal is not, <laughs> here's the danger. This is the heart so deceitful. You could be an expert on the Bible and miss Jesus. Did I ever tell you when I was at, um, I used to work in a bookstore, as many of you know. Um, and so in this bookstore, I used to go to this conference. And this conference was called the Society of Biblical Literature, SBL. And it would take place in various places every year. And we would go as bookstore geeks along with this conference. In this conference, there'd be 2,000 biblical scholars. 2,000 biblical scholars, all converging on New Orleans. Of the 2,000 biblical scholars, maybe 1% were Christian. And so I remember 
I remember walking down Bourbon Street in, in New Orleans before the flood and seeing the guy with a name tag on and a bow tie and just kind of, you know, he's, he's a biblical scholar, but he was hammered out of his head. Um, and I remember listening in the morning. I, I got up in the morning and I saw this young woman and she ran over to, a, to this kind of well-known biblical scholar. She goes, oh, hi. She goes, my name is so-and-so. I graduated from here. She goes, I am a, uh, a Luke chapter 2 scholar. Her whole effort, her, all of her studies for years and years is just on Luke chapter 2. And, and I talked to, I remember we, we, we traveled there with, um, with Gordon Fee, who was at Regent College. And Gordon Fee is a heavyweight New Testament scholar. And I asked Gordon, I said, what is this like for you? And he says, after I come back, he goes, I have to have a spiritual bath. He goes, it's terrible because you get all these people that know God's word but they don't know Jesus. It was real, and that was such a wake-up call to me. It's like you could be an expert on, on the Bible and miss Jesus. Wow. So we need to stand under the text and not fall into uh, bibliolatry. You know, and even to say the Bible, the Bible matters most. No, Jesus matters most. The Bible is the revelation of Jesus, right? Any thoughts on this? Comments? Questions? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's a good question. So uh, Calvin and his re relationship to the Reformed Church. Yeah, so originally it was a fellow named Ulrich Zwingli. He was seen as the father of the Reformed, but Calvin was such a heavyweight thinker. He just kind of took Zwingli and put him aside. So Calvin is seen as the father of, of, of the Reformed Church. Yeah, very good. David, you asked earlier if there's anything that, I forget how you phrased it, that uh, scares you or terrifies you about God or something to this effect. Yeah. And I would say John 5, 39 and 40 uh, are terrifying words. Okay, read that for me. I don't have my Bible with me, so maybe Peter can type it out. He's great at that. But Jesus Use just says, Bible. <laughs> Jesus says something to the fact you diligently study the scriptures. Oh, and right. You, you, you diligently think that in them is life. The oh, you know what? I think it's down here. And I point to you. Sorry. And they point to me and you refuse to come to me to have life. So someone yeah, can diligently right. study the scriptures and miss Christ. You, you and, study the scriptures diligent oh thanks everyone because you think that in them you have eternal life these very scriptures that testify about me and yet you refuse to come to me and have life yeah that's a perfect verse for that well done yeah and that's the challenge of the christian life you could be you could go to church all your life and miss jesus you could try so hard to be a good christian and miss jesus i always tell this to the uh pastoral apprentices I said, you have to be careful. You're working in a church. I said, there's no better hiding place from Jesus than the church. Because nobody will suspect a thing. Oh, they go to church, of course. So we always need to come back to the author and the perfecter of our faith. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus is bigger than the word, but isn't he the word? Yeah. That's right. So, the, so we have a word within the word. 
right? And that's, that's very, very true. And so there is a paradox there. There is a paradox in the Christian life, but I'm okay with that. There's lots of paradoxes in the Christian life. We have to die in order to live. We have to humble ourselves to be exalted, right? We need to be a servant in order to be free. So Jesus is a word within the word. But this is, and so there's lots of conversation about this, but this is God's revelation to us. But it all points to the culmination of the, of the Bible, which is the word of God, which is Jesus, the word become flesh. And so it is God's revelation, but the, but the ultimate pinnacle, the pinnacle of his revelation is the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. But you point out that there is a paradox, a word within the word. Very good. Oh, you guys are awesome. Well done. Really good. No, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not pumping your tires. I wouldn't say that if I didn't mean it. You, you guys are engaging really thoughtfully with this stuff and asking really good questions. Oh, man, that's great. Well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to conclude our time in prayer, and then, um, actually, I'm going to pray this prayer that we should pray before we read the Word. It's actually in your, in your uh, notes. I think this is really helpful. And uh, let this encourage you. We're almost in January, and in January, a lot of people do Bible reading plans. If you're looking for a Bible reading plan, let me know. There's lots of them out there. Um, but there's some, there's some good ones. And again, the, the, the challenge is we need to become students of God's word. We need to read God's word, but we also, there's a danger. Don't be in such a hurry to get through God's word that God's word does not get through you, right? That's, and that's the balance. And so you need to make sure. So don't be in a hurry to do it in a year. Do it over two years, three years. That's fine. Um, but don't just read the parts that you want to read. Read parts that, read Ezekiel. And you'll be like, ah, no wonder nobody takes memory verses from here. Uh, there's some pretty scary stuff in it. But it's powerful. It's very powerful. Sound good? All right, well, let's pray. Oh, God, we rejoice that this is the time we share together in your word in the deeper context of your presence, your purpose, and your power. We want to open ourselves to whatever you want to do in us. So open us up at the deeper levels of our beings that we might be aware of the touches of your grace upon our lives, that we may be responsive and receptive to whatever it is you want us to do. Lord, help us to become people of the book. Help us to, to love your word, to listen to your voice through your word, and uh, we do pray that we would be transformed and shaped by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.